Amen. Good morning. We are in uh, starting a new series, I should say, uh, walking through this Advent season, uh, where we're going to be walking through the Gospels of the Advent season in a series uh, that we've titled Grace Incarnate. More on that in a moment. And as you're getting out your Bibles, I want to encourage you to join with me. I'm in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13. And uh, we are here this morning as you're turning there, beginning uh, the season of Advent together, which Advent defined means the arrival of a notable person, thing, or event. As Christians, we now know that this is the arrival, or this arrival that we speak of, that we celebrate, is the coming of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. But not only do we celebrate the coming of Christ, then we remember his first coming, but we also now wait with eager expectation of the second coming, which he has promised. And praise be to God that every one of the prophecies about him, every one of the promises from him have been fulfilled. And so we can trust and hope in knowing that a day is coming where Jesus Christ will come back. To God be the glory for that. It's the reason why as believers we can say today that Christ has come and he will come again. So do me a favor, say that with me. Christ has come and he will come again. And so over the next few weeks, we will be teaching through the Gospels and seeing the hope, the peace, the joy, and love that comes from grace incarnate or grace embodied in flesh. Now again, we come to this season to be reminded of the coming of Jesus Christ. And by God's grace, we see how it was Jesus Christ who changed the course of life by revealing himself to us, showing us his grace, and now teaching or giving us hope for what is to come. And again, we say to God be the glory for this season. To God be the glory for this celebration. To God be the glory for the opportunity that we have to worship him, not only today and through this season of Advent, but to God be the glory for every opportunity that we get to worship him each and every week well beyond the Advent season. You see, we can say that today because the reality is this. We are never without Jesus Christ. Thus, we are never without hope. So this morning, I want us to take a look at our first characteristic of the season, which is hope itself. And and I I don't want to just talk about hope, but rather I want us to see how today in our society, we need an awakening of hope. You see, we live in a time where, for whatever reason, all news is now bad news, and that seems to be the only thing that we see in our media outlets. More and more, we see in our own society, and probably in our own circles, uh, some of the interactions that are now taking place that have become confrontational. Even as a society, we have lost trust in one another. We have lost trust in our leaders. We have lost trust in our churches. We can't even trust what's happening around us, regardless of what it is that we see. And so we have grown more and more critical. Not only have we grown critical, not only have we lost this trust towards one another, but this has now led to a day and a time where we as a society are quick to become offended by everything we see and hear. See, in our society, to give you an example, people have gotten so offended in our day that they are willing to boycott good food simply because of a restaurant's beliefs or politics. To give you an idea of what I'm talking about, look at the amount of people that are currently seeking to boycott Chick-fil-A because of their stance on family, 
because of their stance on faith. There are even Christians around us who want to boycott Chick-fil-A because they believe that Chick-fil-A has gone woke. Now, I don't know about you, but I didn't realize a fried chicken sandwich had any stance on anything political whatsoever. I didn't know a waffle fry had an agenda other than to make me crave more and wish they were open on Sunday. To God be the glory, they're not. Who knew? I want us to remember that even as a society today, as Christians, we're not too far off from ourselves being so easily offended. You see, it was 1997 when the Southern Baptist Convention decided it would boycott Disney. Now, the reason for boycotting Disney was not a bad one. However, the concept and the way it was applied, I don't think, really took off very well. Because, you see, they made a general rule for Southern Baptists that thankfully they've gotten rid of that all Southern Baptists should now boycott Disney. And when told this, the first question that came to my mind was, how do you do that? Because if you're going to boycott Disney you would have to boycott ESPN, which means no sports. That might be a good thing for many of us who stress over sports. At the same time, not only would you boycott Disney, but you now have to boycott channels like ABC, which may means you'd have to stop watching your favorite TV shows. You may have to stop listening to your favorite newscast, perhaps your favorite weatherman. And then I realized in 1997 that in order to boycott Disney, you were also going to now have to boycott Coca-Cola. And I'm going to tell you, this Georgia boy was not having that. Okay, I have a line, and there it was. Now again, I'm in no way advocating for the rightness or the wrongness of of these particular movements or these particular uh, boycotts that were taking place, but it has always amazed me how quick our world judges without any thought of having a conversation first. It's amazed me that with all of this madness going on, all of this infighting going on, we look around and ask the question, where is the hope? Where is the thing that we need to hope in? Well, as we're going to see this morning, the reality for us this morning is hope has always been there. What we really need as a nation, in fact, what we need as a Church is an awakening of hope. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, I want to encourage you to join with me. I'm in the Gospel of Mark in chapter 13. We're going to begin reading in verse 24. And once you have found your place in Mark 13, beginning at verse 24, if you can and able, I would ask you now to stand in honor of the reading of the Word of God. Now again, this is Mark's account of the Gospels, of the good news of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, Jesus' own words here. Mark chapter 13, verse 24, Mark writes, But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. 
Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Now I can think of no better way to begin a message on hope than to look directly at the words of Jesus Christ himself. And we find ourselves here in the Gospel of Mark, here in the midst of what has been called the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus is now teaching the disciples about what is to come in the last days. Now, what we know of the Olivet Discourse is this is actually the longest discourse recorded in the Gospels during what would be Holy Week or Jesus' final week before the crucifixion. We also see this text in Matthew chapter 24 and 25 and again in Luke chapter 21. Now, clearly Jesus knew by this point that this would be some of his final moments with the apostles, with the disciples, some of his final words. And upon reading, as we continue to read the story, we also know that as well. But for the apostles, they probably had no idea how close they were to the coming crucifixion of Jesus Christ. So clearly what we have in this passage from verse 24 to verses 37 are some important words coming from Jesus himself as they would be some of his final teachings before his death, burial, and ultimately his resurrection. And it's here in this discourse that we are given a word of hope from our Lord and Savior. So let's look again at Jesus' words and look at them carefully this morning and see how we can have an awakening of hope. And I believe that Jesus gives us three ways that that can happen today. First of all, I want us to look back at verses 24 through 27 and and to see that if we want an awakening of hope, we need to recognize that hope comes in power. Notice how Jesus opens by talking about his own power. Look again at verse 24. He says, but in those days, after that tribulation. Now, Jesus is talking about the destruction of the temple at this moment. He's talking about the destruction of Israel itself and the misery and the distress that is coming for the people of Israel and for the people of God. Now, again, this was a prophetic word that was coming from Jesus Christ. And then look what he says again in verse 24 and 25. He continues, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Jesus in this moment says at the second coming, the sun will be gone. At the second coming, there will be no light. The stars will fall and all that is seen in the heavens will be shaken. In other words, at the second coming, the glory of the divine majesty that is God, that ultimately belongs to God, all of it will begin to fade. 
The presence of the Lord who holds all things together, who sustains all things, it will all begin to vanish as His second coming is happening. Now this sounds a bit terrifying. It even sounds almost hopeless. How can the the glory of God be shaken? How can the the, the sustaining ability of the Lord all of a sudden begin to shake and begin to crumble? Well, Jesus answers that question in verse 26. He says, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. You see, all these things will begin to take place because the Lord is coming in power. All of these things will take place because the Lord is coming in glory. So what we have happening when he speaks of the sun being darkened, the moon no longer giving light, the stars falling from heaven, and the powers of heavens being shaken, Jesus is saying these words because he wants the disciples to understand that on the day he returns, even the heavens will bow down and worship. For all will be made low as the God who upholds all things returns to earth in His glory. And here's the reality. He's not just coming in glory, but rather He is coming in power. In other words, here is what God is doing. The greatness and the goodness and the glory and the power that is the splendor and the majesty of our Lord. At His coming, Nothing will stand in His presence. Not even the sun will shine as bright as the power of God. The heavens will begin to shake as the power of God is put on full display for all to see. But again, He's coming in power. Which means not only will the creation worship but he will come to take vengeance out and pour wrath onto all that has stood against God. All that has declared evil and sin as good will be brought to ruin because hope is coming in power. And what will God do in that moment? He says that he will establish his kingdom and declare war upon all that seeks to stand against God. I want you to hear this word because we often say, yes, Lord Jesus, come. But I want you to understand just the awesomeness and the magnificence of what is going to take place when Jesus Christ returns. It is going to be awe-inspiring. It is going to be wonderful. It is going to be hopeful because what we have longed for as believers, what we have waited for, that we have desired to see come, will come and it will come in power. But notice that Jesus doesn't just stop there. He says in verse 27, And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. As if it wasn't Enough for King Jesus to return. He's not just returning to establish his kingdom. He's coming for his people. You see, the Lord will come. The Lord with his messengers will come and they will come to gather those to whom he has called to himself from every nation, from every tribe, and from every tongue. We have a parallel verse in this in Revelation chapter 7 verse 9. 
when it says, And after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. In other words, when we see Jesus speaking in this moment, he's prophesying about what is coming. And what is coming is a day where he gathers all of his people to himself. I mean, this is good news for us who are here. I, I, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, I, I'm kind of excited about this. I'm kind of getting loud. And if that bothers you, I'm sorry, but I'm excited. I'm waiting on this day. I'm ready for this day. Okay, we're, where are you at, Steve? Steve's celebrating a birthday today. Happy birthday, brother. We're getting older, aren't we? Yeah. Hallelujah. And here's what happens. Our bodies are fading. Here's what's happening. Our world is beginning to crumble. Our societies are beginning to hemorrhage and fall apart. And what is going to save us? It's not a what, it's a who. It's Jesus Christ. And it's the hope that we have in His coming. A hope that is coming in power. This is good news for us today. So for those who are called by His name as believers in Christ today, this moment is good news. And the fact that we are gathered together now as a body of believers, the fact that we are gathered together today as a church shows that God is beginning to draw His people together. I mean, do you realize that when you come to worship? I, I, just, I just want to ask you do, you, do you understand that when you come to worship? Do you understand that when we gather as a body of believers, that, that our gathering is really just a microcosm of what is coming when the Lord returns? This is, this is a baby step in terms of God gathering his people together. So as we gather for worship, worship itself is a reminder of the hope that we now have because of Jesus Christ. And it's a reminder that the Lord is drawing his people to himself as the day draws near. So you see, church, I want us to understand this. When you, when you get here on Sundays, and I don't know how you got here, and what I mean by that is this. I know none of you rode a horse and buggy in. What I'm talking about is I don't, know, I don't know the heart posture that you came with today. You might have had a hard week. You might have had a tough week. You might have gotten a diagnosis. You might have gotten a sickness that your house can't shake. You might have woke up this morning and you thought, Lord Jesus, these children that you have blessed me with are testing everything about sanctification today. And I either need you to humble me and protect me from beating them with a Bible. To God be the glory. Amen. You may have come in feeling that way this morning. And I want to tell you something. That's okay. Because when you walk in here, I want you to look around. And I want you to see that we are gathered here today as a reminder of what is coming when the Lord returns. When he comes, he is coming in power. And he's not just bringing his power on display, but he is coming and he is drawing his people to himself. And so we have hope. And so church, I want to ask you, does this give you hope to know that every time you walk into worship, you are a step closer to the Lord drawing us in and near to him? 
I mean, I want us to hear this good news because by God's grace, if you're a believer here today, you have been called to Him. We gather for worship around the Word of God. This, is, this literally is practice for what is coming when the Lord returns and, and draws His people to Him. And yet here's the reality. According to Jesus Christ in this passage, when He comes again, He's not coming as a gentle and lowly baby. He's returning as the King of Kings. He's returning as the Lord of Lords. He's returning in all power. He's returning in all glory. And so now we wait knowing that hope comes in power. And that hope is Jesus Christ. And yes, Jesus Christ is coming. And so I want to ask you, when you come to worship, when you come into this place, knowing that each week it is the Lord who has drawn us together, knowing that each and every week it is the Lord who is drawing more and more people into this place, do we realize that we are here by His power and His glory? Do we realize that when we gather We are one step closer to what the Lord will do when He comes in power. You see, for the believers in Christ, upon hearing this word, this should awaken the hope that's within us. But here's the reality. Jesus didn't just stop at talking about His power. He then goes on to to further explain how we can continue to awaken hope. And He says this. He gives us this word, verse 28 through 31. He says, not only uh, does hope come in power, and you need to recognize that, but you need to realize that hope is now near. We see this in verses 28 through 31. Notice how Jesus begins with a lesson about a fig tree in verse 28. Now, if this would have made complete sense to the disciples because fig trees were everywhere in the area, and they generally were one of those trees that would kind of go through the seasons of life that we often see. In fact, chances are during the Olivet Discourse, there probably would have been several of these fig trees near Jesus where this discourse was even being given. So the visual illustration was right there in front of them. And so notice what Jesus does. Jesus compares this season of power and the coming of Christ with that of a fig tree that is blooming. And this is what he says about it in verse 29. He says, So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Jesus in this moment says to them, When you see all these things taking place, when darkness falls from the heavens when Israel lies in ruin. Then like the fig tree in spring, you can know that hope is near for Jesus' return is literally at the door. It's what leads us to the words again in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, when Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. This is how close Jesus is when these things take place. We continue in our text and Jesus takes this story one step further and actually takes an interesting turn when we get to verse 30. He says, truly I say to you that this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now yet here again for however many weeks in a row, we have come across one of the most hotly debated passages in Jesus's teachings and in the word of God. Now let's begin by by stating the obvious. The first thing we see in this passage is Jesus saying, truly I say to you, so clearly what Jesus is about to say has to be very serious. And then what happens next is scholars have argued for decades and centuries about the meaning of the phrase, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. So I'm just going to give you four of them. The first one, group of scholars have said this, 
They believe that that Jesus' kingdom, when Jesus says this, would actually come in Jesus' generation. Thus, they argue that, that Jesus Christ was never a deity. And thus, he was wrong. Therefore, he was in error. Thus, he could not prophesy. Therefore, he was just a man and could not save your soul. I'm going to state the obvious. This is not true. <laughs> and that's a bad translation. There are other scholars who would argue and understood this word as the word generation standing for the word race. Thus, the event that will happen will take place during the time of the Jewish race, which I believe is a little too broad stroke here and a little too easy. And actually what it does is it elevates a people group over others when the reality is we know that Jesus Christ came to save both Jew and Gentile. We have a third category. Scholars have argued that possibly... Possibly the contemporary generation of Jesus' day is being spoken of here. These are the ones who did live long enough to see the modern-day event of Jerusalem and the temple being destroyed in A.D. 70. So they're arguing that this event already took place. Good argument. We did see that happen. However, did you see the sun darkened? Did the heavens shake? Because I don't believe current Jerusalem is heaven. I don't believe... Current Israel is the kingdom of God. Though we've got popular movies and shows that want to tell us that. There's a fourth argument to be made here. And scholars make this point. They say most likely this passage actually refers to the eschatological generation that will be alive at the end of history and they will see these events occur in proximity to one another as Jesus Christ returns. Now, when you study this passage, that's more than likely what you're looking at here. But, but here's the thing. We can debate the merit, especially those last two. We can debate the, the merit in terms of historical context and even cultural context and even theological context. But here's the reality that I believe that Jesus is placing the emphasis on. You see, I think Jesus is telling us that there's good news. And that good news is this, that the hope that we see in this particular verse is that God's people... God's church will still be around no matter what the world tries to do until the end of days. In other words, the church is going nowhere. I mean, it doesn't matter what is happening to churches across the nations, the church is going to still exist. It doesn't matter what our, our neighbors to the north uh, put upon pastors in terms of the burden they have to carry, whether or not they can meet or whether or not they have to turn in sermons before they actually have a worship service. It doesn't matter. The faithful church of God will continue to exist. It doesn't matter what happens in the United States. They can close our doors, and yet the church of God will still exist. Yeah. In other words, we're not going anywhere. As long as there's faithful believers, faithful pastors and elders, faithful churches who are faithful to this word of God, then they will remain until the day the Lord returns. How do we know this? Verse 31, Jesus answers the question, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. You see, Jesus tells us that at the second coming, all things are going to pass away. All things are going to turn to just rubbish. But that which will last will be the word of God. Thus, where does our hope rest? It rests upon the word of God. 
No matter what happens to us, no matter where life takes us, no matter what conversations we find ourselves in, no matter what thing comes out next that tells us as a society we have to shut down, it will not stop the Word of God. Praise be to God that no matter where we find ourselves, we can lean into the Word of God. Praise be to God that no matter what happens in our life, we can stand upon the Word of God. Why? Because Jesus Christ tells us that only the Word of God will last. And so praise be to God that as His people, we get to open His Word every day and we get to study His Word each and every week as we gather. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if we want to awaken hope, we've got to recognize that hope is near to us. Every day, This world is drawing one step closer to closing. And every day, we are one step closer to the Lord's return. And before that day, there will be wars and rumors of wars. Calamity and distress will run rampant. Jerusalem and the temple itself will be destroyed. But yet Jesus says to us, in your heartache, in your distress, in, in the, the hurts of life, no matter what society says to you, do not worry for I am coming soon. In fact, I am near. Brothers and sisters, this means that even on our hardest days, our hardest days, we can rest in knowing that He is near. Meaning this, brothers and sisters, you are never far from hope. It's literally standing at the door. And so I want to ask you this morning, do you rest today in the hope that is near to you? Do you rest in knowing that that what you have in your hands, this this, this word of God, this, this in your hand, this is going to last for all of eternity. You can find hope in this book. You can find hope in Jesus Christ. No matter where you find yourselves, there is hope to be found. It is right there upon you. Do you see it? Coming back to our text, Jesus then gives us two obviously prophetic words on the awakening of hope. But then he says... He says to us that this hope is going to come in power. It's going to be near. But then Jesus is going to give us one final aspect of how we can now awaken hope, which is, which is not just a knowing, but rather it becomes a doing for the people of God. Verses uh, 20, 32 through 37. Jesus teaches us this, that if you want to awaken hope, you have to recognize that hope is active. You see, Jesus in this moment, in these passages, did not want his disciples to to literally hear, hey, hope's coming in power, so be ready. Hope's near, so be ready. No, he 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 doesn't want them to sit back and take a passive, sit back, watch and wait approach approach when it comes to hope. He didn't want want the believers in Christ to all of a sudden say, hey, we're just going to sit here and, and lock the doors and wait for the second coming of Jesus Christ. He actually teaches quite the opposite. Look with me, verse 32. He says, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Again, God the Father is the one who holds all times and all seasons by His power. So Jesus tells us that God the Father alone knows when this day will come. 
Again, we can try to predict the second coming, but the reality is we're never going to come close to getting the day right. Nor will we be able to ever lay any type of claim on when that day is going to happen. Why? Because only God will receive the glory for when he returns, not man predicting it. In fact, I want to remind you, I've shared this story before. There was a fellow back in 1988 who wrote a book, The Reason, 88 Reasons Why Jesus Christ Will Return in 1988. I'd say he was wrong. You know what he did the follow-up year? He wrote a book called 89 Reasons Why Jesus Will Return in 1989. He was wrong. Shockingly enough, he took a few years off to pray about it. And then he gave us, in the year 1993... 93 reasons why Jesus will return in 1993. No offense, somebody needs to give this brother a Bible and like read it. Every time he's tried to predict this, he's been wrong. Why? Because only the Father knows. I was reminded in seminary, I was sitting in a New Testament class, and my New Testament professor, who was a very strange man, would always walk into class, and the first thing he would do is he would look around and he'd start jumping. First day of class, start jumping. Did it every class. Thanks be to God, he explained to us what he was doing on the first day of class. He would jump a couple times, and then here's what he would say in a very stoic voice. He would say, well, I am disappointed as we are not in glory. But while we're still here, and then he would tell us where to turn in the New Testament. And then he had the audacity to give us homework. Come on, you believe? Anyway, that's another conversation for another day. All that to say, even my New Testament professor waited with eager anticipation. Now, yes, he joked about jumping, but the point still remained. How are we living with eager anticipation and actively living out our faith as if Jesus Christ will return? Now, again, I'm not saying let's all start jumping because it's not going to give you a head start. But now, I want us to come back to the passage because there's something I want us to note carefully here. Some have looked at this passage and argued that clearly because Jesus Christ didn't know, it says the Son of Man didn't even know, but only the Father, that clearly Jesus was just that. He was just a man. Again, what they're seeking to do, and oh, by the way, you're going to hear this as we get closer to Christmas. You're going to hear it again as we get into the Easter season as well next season. But what they begin to state is this, that clearly Jesus was not the Christ. He was not the Messiah because even he doesn't know. But rather, he was a good man who offered good teachings. Now, again, I want to offer you this. When Jesus says these words, this does not mean that Jesus was not God. It doesn't mean that Jesus was not deity. No, he was fully divine. However, when saying he didn't know, Jesus in this moment was speaking specifically to his fully human side. From his side of humanity at this moment, as the Son of Man, he probably didn't have the knowledge. However, as the Son of God, he did have the knowledge, and he would know as he is God. So what Jesus is pointing to in this moment is the fact that he is not only fully human, but he's also fully divine. We have a great phrase for that. It's called the hypostatic union. Praise be to God for the fact that he was fully God. And yet at the same time, Jesus Christ humbled himself to become fully human, to take on the death and the debt that we deserved. That is the beauty of the incarnation, that Jesus Christ would lay aside, not 
not get rid of them, not destroy them, but he would simply lay aside his divine attributes and take on humanity. If anything, this points us to the beauty and the mystery and the awesomeness and the wonder of God. I mean, think about that for a moment. Jesus Christ seated upon the throne as a part of the triune God humbled Himself, stepping off the throne, laying aside His crown to come to earth so that broken man in humility could be glorified and now exist with God in heaven. Not as God, but as the people of God. That is the hope that we have been given by Christ Jesus our Lord. And we continue in the text. And I believe that God in this moment has a reason for us not knowing. And here's what Jesus says, verse 33. He says, be on guard, keep awake. In other words, be on guard, keep active. For you do not know when the time will come. Now, again, we may not know the exact time and place, but here's what we do know from Jesus. He tells us that we are now called to be active in our faith. And how are we now called to be active in our faith? We are called to be watchful, to stay awake, learning and growing in the Word in preparation for what is to come. We are called to to be prayerful, to stay awake, maintaining our focus and our heart posture on God the Father. And then we get to verse 34, and he gives us this incredible analogy of a man on a journey and leaving the servants in charge. And it's here in this passage that we see, even as the church, we are called to not only wait with anticipation, but we are called to faithfully continue in the work. We are called to faithfully continue in the assignments that we have been given. We have been called to faithfully continue to read and unpack this beautiful thing that is the Word of God. We have been called to be on guard against those who would rob the house or seek to mislead the house or mislead the body. We have been called to to faithfully care for the house, doing our part, serving in the house until the Lord returns. I mean, this is why Paul says, spoiler alert for next year, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he says, we are one body made up of many members. And here's the reality. Until the Lord returns, we have been called to worship. We have been called to serve. And we have been called to work and to care together as one until the Master returns. And then we get to verse 35. And Jesus really doubles down on this story and tells the disciples to really stay active, to stay alert, because you don't know when the master will come. It could happen at any time. That's probably the reason why my New Testament professor kept jumping. Our purpose is to be ready for when he returns. In fact, verse 36 tells us that we get a, we get a warning of what happens when we're not ready. He says, lest he come suddenly and finds you asleep. Jesus says, Don't let my return surprise you. Don't get caught off guard. Don't be negligent in your call. Don't be diligent in your study of the Word. Don't become lazy in in your call to worship. Don't fall asleep to your sin, thus unexercised in grace and therefore unprepared 
for His coming. And yet, sadly, in our society, this is what many of us have done when it comes to our own worship or our lack of desire to be a part or to serve the local community through the local church. I mean, here's the truth for us this morning and this morning. If you begin to neglect the Word of God, you will lose the value of being a part of the local community. And other things, here's the result of that, other things, not of God, will fill that void or space in your life. Those other things will then begin to impact how you view the Word. It will begin to impact how you worship, how you serve. It will begin to impact how you lead your families and how you encourage one another. So Jesus says, don't be caught napping in your faith. If you're going to be caught doing anything, be caught growing. Then Jesus closes out in verse 37. He says this, and what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Man, this call was not just for the apostles. Jesus said, no, this is for all disciples. This is for the church, not only in Jerusalem, but this is for the churches throughout the nations. And so as his church today, we are called to remain watchful. We are called to be on our guard. As his church, we are called to cast off all laziness and slothfulness. And as a church, we are to not neglect meeting together. We are not to neglect praying or neglect the word itself. In other words, Jesus says, be active in your faith as you wait. Be active in your faith as you wait with hope for the second coming is near and he's coming in power. And so I want to ask you this morning, brothers and sisters of Christ, are you active in your hope? Now again, that's a broad stroke philosophical question. Kind of simple, rudimentary. So let's break it down a little further. If you want to know whether or not you're active in your hope and active in your faith and what is to come in Christ, then answer this question. What does your time in the Word of God look like? Maybe a better question to ask us this morning is this. When was the last time you spent time in the Word of God? When was the last time you spent time growing and and getting to know brothers and sisters around you? Encouraging one another, edifying one another, seeking to, to challenge one another to continue to grow in faith. What, was the, what, what about serving? When was the last time you, you faithfully served? I mean, can I just share a truth with you right now? If our only engagement with the church is on Sunday morning and the Sunday morning experience, then I got to ask you are you truly growing and encouraging those around you to grow? Because this, this can't be it. This can't be the only thing we're about. Again, this is a beautiful thing, but it's a small part of what we do. And so I want to ask this question. How are we challenging and encouraging one another when we walk away from this place on a Sunday morning? You know, recently I sat down with uh, another church and I was walking them through uh, a a particular session. I had the permission to share this and I was really discouraged because I listened to um, just some people who were just very disgruntled and very upset 
And again, this was not here. This was over another conversation on another call far, far away from here. So that's why I share this story and I have permission. But here's what concerned me. People were leaving this church. And the reason why they were leaving is because they didn't feel like they were connected. And so I asked them, how do you define connection? And they say, well, we show up on Sunday mornings. And I said, praise be to God. But what about the other times when your church meets? And they said, we've never done that. These people had been active members of their church for 15 years. And they were wondering why they didn't feel connected. Now again, I'm not saying that to convict anyone in the room or pointing out anyone in the room. I'm just simply saying this. Listen, if you don't feel like you're connecting to the local body here, then ask yourself this question. How are you faithfully serving in other areas? How are you being edified in other areas? And you can't sit here and say to us today, well, Southside doesn't offer anything. We just had a ministry fair, did we not? Right. We've also got gospel communities. Shameless plug, we gather on Sunday nights at 5 o'clock <laughs> for the purpose of prayer. You see, as God's people, it should really be our desire to gather together with one another. It should be a priority for us to gather together knowing that in the waiting, we have been called to be active in the wait. We've called to, to be together as the body of believers, reminding one another, hey, I hear your struggle, but here's the reality. Hope is near. We need one another to be able to share that with each other so that we can be encouraged and edified as we worship our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, together. So how does our life reflect the waiting for the return of Jesus Christ? J.C. Ryle said it so brilliantly. He said, uncertainty about the date of the Lord's return is calculated to keep believers in an attitude of constant expectation and to preserve them from despondency. In other words, in knowing that we are now in the season of Advent, what does our waiting look like? As believers today, we now live in the anticipation of what is to come. We know that Jesus Christ has fulfilled all of his promises, and now there is one left, and it is the second coming of Jesus Christ, the day he returns in all power and all glory. And as those called by him, we now wait in hope. We wait in hope that will come in power, knowing that Jesus Christ is sovereign and supreme over all things, knowing that all things fall under his care and under his rule, knowing that even the heavens themselves will bow down and cry out of his coming glory. We now wait. We now wait in knowing that hope is near. Every day is another step closer. Every moment is one step towards the return of the king. He is so near that he stands at the door and so we wait. We wait recognizing that our hope should be active. 
Until he returns, we have been tasked with gathering for worship, with staying grounded in the word, with being discipled and discipling one another, sharing the gospel, or better yet, sharing of the hope that we now have in Jesus Christ because we are not called to sit idly by and wait. There is work to be done, and so we wait. In this season of Advent, Knowing that grace was made flesh in Christ, we have much to hope in and much to hope for. Do not lose sight of the hope that is coming. I want to close with another quote by J.C. Ryle, if I could, about this particular passage and about the coming of Christ. He says this, The second coming of Christ shall be utterly unlike the first. He came the first time in weakness, a tender infant born of a poor woman in the manger at Bethlehem, unnoticed, unhonored, and scarcely known. And he shall come again. He shall come the second time in royal dignity with the armies of heaven around him to be known, to be recognized, and to be feared by all the tribes of the earth. He shall come again. And we join with J.C. Ryle and with John in Revelation and say, Amen. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. May his word and this season awaken the hope that dwells in us in Christ. Let's pray together.